Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whitfall. Now, you might have heard and read in recent weeks during the COVID crisis of the enormous challenges facing the arts in Britain and the creative industries. We've heard lots about how our theatres might actually have to close, indeed how many of them, most of them in fact, are facing oblivion. But this is just an arts-wide problem, it's not just the theatre. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the government announced a bailout of about 1.57 billion. But what really will the crisis, first of all COVID, and indeed for that matter, the cultural crisis we've had afterwards, Black Lives Matter protests and so forth, what effect will these have on the future of the arts? And what in fact has been exposed in terms of our attitude to the arts? Now to discuss these questions today, I'm delighted we've got four guests. Robin Aiken, who's been on the show couple of times before. He is former BBC reporter. He is author of Can We Trust the BBC and The Noble Liar. William Cook is a writer and contributor to, amongst others, The New Statesman, The Spectator, The Guardian, and also was once theatre critic. Jacob Phillips is associate professor at Queen Mary's and writes about the arts and culture. And of course, our resident here, resident guest, Rafe Hadelman-Koo of the New Culture Forum, commentator and historian. Thank you very much for joining me, uh, all of you. Um, can I start? I want to ask uh, uh, one question, um, and I will start with you, if I may, William. Um, do, do you think that the arts sector uh, should have got 1.57 million bailout? Gosh, that's um, it's a tricky question. I'll, I'll do my best to uh, give, give my opinion as to the answer. Just to update you a little bit on your intro, I guess the people I'm writing mainly for these days are The Spectator, The Independent and The Oldie. I, I did write quite a lot for The Guardian and The New Statesman, but haven't done that for quite a long time. Right. Um, I always feel a bit kind of awkward about money going to arts institutions, particularly the performing arts. Um, obviously, I mean, I think it is, is something like looking after museums or, or looking after galleries. That's one thing, but the big problem when you give public money to performing arts is in the end, somebody's got to decide who gets how much, whether some people get a lot and some people get a little and some people get nothing at all. And uh, it, it's the same old question, who, who, who decides and, and what criteria to, do, do they decide on? I guess in my, my sort of fantasy political world, um, the solution I'd like to see is a sort of basic universal income for artists. Mm. You know, obviously, I don't want to see anybody uh, uh, not be able to pay their mortgage or, or, or not be able to pay their supermarket bill or anything. But I, I think the individuals, if all the individuals got a thousand pounds a month and were told to get on with it, um, and, you know, that covered any, any kind of other payment or, or, or whatever, I think that would be a lot more straightforward because then we get away from this problem of somebody uh, deciding who gets what money and whether some people don't get any at all. But how would then one, you know, decide who is an artist or not? Would that be a subjective uh, evaluation? <laughs> well, so yeah, th th then we're into completely uncharted waters. I guess I'm, I guess I'm saying, you know, that uh, I, you know, obviously some subsidy is needed to, to, to to keep the precious institutions going that I enjoy visiting as much yeah. as anyone else. But I think with regard to the performing arts, the thing that makes me uneasy, I have no 
simplistic solutions to it. But the thing that makes me uneasy is the idea of, uh, of people deciding who's worthy to get public cash. Is that something you would agree with, Jacob? Do you, do, do you think, or, or, or what uh, William has said there, or indeed the more general point as well about the government giving the money uh, to the arts after, I have to say, many weeks of protests from the arts? I mean, what is your view on it? Well, I mean, in principle, I think, given the severity of the crisis, Rishi Sunak's interventionism, or even red Toryism, you could call it, is it's necessary. But I really do share William's um, fears about these decisions about who gets what. And the arts sector, uh, the arts establishment, if you like, have um, have not filled me with great faith that um, you know funds will be distributed wisely and equitably. They seem to be very ideologically driven. Um, I mean, you raised a very good point there, Peter, of who... How do they decide who an artist is? Well, if you look at Let's Create, the strategy document of Arts Council England, they don't actually use the word artist right. because art, art is considered high art um, and therefore some sort of toxic term. So we can't say artist, we say creative practitioners. Um, if we're in a context where even the word artist itself is a problem, then you know we do have to ask ourselves, how is this money going to dis be distributed? And you know what are the checks and balances on the clear... Um, ideological motivations which seem to be very prevalent in the sector at the moment. Uh, but in, t in principle, Jacob, you, you have no problem with the money being given? No, no, I think it's necessary. We're, we're in such uncharted territory. Yes. I think that radical interventions are necessary at the moment economically. Yes. Um, Robin and Rafe, uh, there is a, an argument going on and it, it actually happens. It's not a left-right thing actually for what it's worth. No. It's a, I think it's actually mostly happens, if you like, on the centre-right of politics. There are many people who would agree with William and Jacob that the arts should have this money. And then you've got the others, the sort of free market fundamentalists who say, absolutely not. What do you, where, where do you start? Well, I would look at it more in terms of um, a job creation scheme. So uh, what I mean is that the money which has been given to the arts, which seems to me substantial and even generous in some terms, um, has to be looked at in the context of what the Chancellor is attempting to do. So it isn't that he wishes, I think, probably, I don't think the government has a positive wish to uh, preserve the arts. I think they, they see the arts as another industrial sector. Mm -hmm. And like other industrial sectors, it needs support at this moment, because if it doesn't get it, there could be long-term damage to the arts infrastructure. And that's something that clearly the government would wish to avoid. So it's really, I mean, I don't, <laughs> you know, I take the, I take the point about uh, how the money will be divvied up before, between all the various organizations. But I mean, that is a, um, I mean, that is a, a judgment which will be made by people in arts administration. I don't think the government will be that bothered about that, the detail of it, I think what they're interested in is saying the arts need some money and we need to preserve jobs in the arts because in a couple of years' time they'll be productive and we'll need them. I think that's what it's about. That's right. I think sort of we have to look at this really as being one arrow in the quiver of the new of the new New Deal for Britain. Uh, this is one of the industries which I think singles Britain out. Britain is ranked in the top four countries in the world for as, as a cultural soft power. Um, and so, even though we may not like the I call them cuckoos in the nests of our theatres and institutions, um, <coughs> artists and actors who perhaps don't reflect 
the true British values, the buildings that they're in, the institutions that they are that they are occupying, do deserve uh, being saved. Not only for cultural values, but pure economic values. The amount of money that is brought into the economy through through the theatres and through live music venues, the number of people that are employed. Rishi Sunak said that there are seven hundred thousand people employed here. This includes museums. And it includes you know the National Museum of Coal Mining and Railway Museums as well as theatre and the arts, all of which are vitally important. So I think there's an importance to preserve that for posterity. And um, if there's a way in which you know the government had any, if the government had any sort of um, a Trumpian um, um, magnetism behind it, it would try and tie this to basically some sort of agenda and say, if if you are an organisation that has silenced other other playwrights and directors and so forth, you won't be getting this funding. <laughs> but of course, the funding is allocated by the Arts Council for England, by the Heritage Lottery Foundation and the British Film Institute. And there has to be, I think, some sort of uh, requirement behind this funding that it comes with caveats. Um, uh, actually, um, well, I, the, the trouble with that is, I mean, I, I, I kind of agree in theory, it would be nice if you could do that. But the point is, actually translating that into practical action, I think, would involve all sorts of judgments which would bring the odium of the arts world down upon the government. The point is that this isn't, I don't think this is an aesthetic government. <laughs> I think this is, this is not an aesthetic judgment by the government. It's an economic judgment. And it has to be looked at in those terms. Now, I know... Obviously, there are, there are major considerations which people are talking about now. You know, these things which you are discussing about who should get the money. Yeah. But that's not the way the government's seeing it, I don't think. Mm. I think it's a question that they, they just see it as, a, um, as an imperiled industrial sector. And they know that in the medium term, when tourism of a type returns... One of the reasons people come to London have, and have always come to London is because they can have a cultural experience here which is varied and actually very good quality. And that is something which, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be an economics genius to work that out. Mm. It's not really about... So that's what I, I, that's what I guess the government is doing here. Mm. Uh, Jacob, I want to pick something up you, you said there when you were talking about the Arts Council England and the fact that they don't use the word arts, you know, that they use creative practitioners. Um, this is something, it seems to me, that's at one with a lot of what we might have learnt about our institutions over the past couple of months. It seems to be that they don't quite believe in what they're meant to be doing, or rather they've lost faith in what they're meant to be doing. Is that something, do you think that's a valid, valid point? I do. And I mean, the document I had in mind, this document called Let's Create, the 10-year strategy for Arts Council England, um, it, it not only won't use the word artist, it, it says that the concept of art is a problem because it means high art, of which it gives the examples of ballet and opera as if there can't be, you know, low art forms or examples of ballet and opera, which there clearly can. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a problem with the literacy, the artistic literacy, considering that this comes from Arts Council England. But it, we, we get back to this point. I mean, I agree that... Um, the, the current administration are making an economic decision and saving jobs and creating jobs even, and, and that's very worthy. But with someone like Arts Council England, I mean, they have at the moment in that 10-year document um, that they will be uh, imposing or uh, encouraging targets um, on the basis of these investment principles of inclusivity and relevance. <laughs> so although the government aren't saying 
anything or aren't interested really on where it goes as long as jobs are created and, and uh, mm. uh, you know money is spent um, mm. it is going to be filtered through people who do have quite clear agendas and mm. I think that is a concern. No I mean you know that is a fascinating point and, and to be honest um, you know I had not thought of that but you make a very you make a very plausible case there and I would think that um, the difficulty as I see it is how if you if you were a politician and you wished to um, in some way discriminate in the arts and select organizations which you felt were creating something worthwhile and which was within your ideological tradition, if you like. So I'm thinking of the right, I mean, I'm sure I like everybody, all of us, I imagine. I, I, I feel when I consume the arts, and I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a sort of passionate consumer of the arts, but I do go to things, obviously. I rarely find that um, I am confronted by a production which is uplifting, which has a respect for British culture in a, I don't mean in a solemn and um, sort of pompous way, but I mean a recognition of the real worth of British culture and actually the things which lie deep within it which are very worth preserving. When I go to the theatre I too often find myself confronted by a sort of diatribe by some um, ideological liberal uh, which I find deeply off-putting and I don't suppose I'm alone. But Robin, you're absolutely right, and, and your, your opinion is one that's reflected by the majority of the population of this country, I would imagine, uh, or indeed any sane person would be sure to share those views. And that's why I think there's an opportunity here for the government to actually recreate, reconnect with its potential future voting base in the Red Wall and elsewhere, who share these concerns about British culture, its cultural security as much as economic security, which is at risk here. And that's why I think, you know, it, <laughs> Trump, Trump can see this in America, right? Yeah. You saw that wonderful speech he made on July the 4th, Independence Day, calling out an all-out war essentially on those who are uh, the extreme you know, fascists of the left and the illiberals who are trying to silence opposition yeah. and try to have ideological conformity. If there can be a way in which the government can, can try to halt this, this, um, this sinister force going through the arts right now, it would be to actually make a statement and say, if you are um, anti-diversity you know, anti of thought and anti-diversity of opinion, then funding will not be allocated towards you. And that means you know, an overhaul of the Arts Council of England appointments process to ensure that there are people on the Arts Council who actually understand and, and, and see the dangers inherent in the way that culture is going in this country. And the same thing goes for Heritage Lottery Foundation grants. If these actually can be tied, the government can only use money now as, as a way to try to influence yeah. this. And I think that's, that's something which a, a, a government with balls would actually um, should seize upon. Uh, uh, Jacob, do you have any sort of sympathy with the, with the view that basically we should, you did say we should support the government's 1.5 billion, um, and I'm not anti-public spending on the arts at all, but can you see why people might be less sympathetic now? Because essentially it does seem like there is an entirely monolithic sort of set of attitudes now in the arts. I mean, I, my background is also in the arts, in arts television. I used to make arts programmes for ITV. Um, and I, I'm sure that it has got much, much more censorious and much more constricted. Yes, I mean, I, I can understand those fears. And, um, you know, I can really 
I can also see William's point that the last thing we want is the Minister for Digital and Culture to be deciding you know, where the money <laughs> should go. And nobody wants that. Um, however, little faith one might have in some in people like Arts Council England. But I think what, what worries me about the censoriousness, uh, as I've heard of it and read about it and witnessed it, is that it plays on um, things which are integral to the arts, like being exploratory, you know, experimenting, being challenging, dynamic. Um, and yet it's the opposite of all those things. And I think that's what's very concerning. Mm -hmm. It would be much more punk rock or much more exploratory now if, you know, to go to an exhibition of Turner or Constable <laughs> than it would to you know, whatsoever, whatever's going on in the Tate Modern. And I think yeah. it, it all comes back to this, this incredibly vexed term, diversity. And, and one, I would just, I, I would like to be in a situation where there is a diversity of arts, uh, you know, mainstream, national institutions of art sponsoring and encouraging art which understands things like the preservation of tradition um, art as edifying and um and cultural transmission beyond this this very narrow censoriousness yes you mentioned there uh, the tate uh, modern uh, the head of tate modern francis morrison i believe it is uh recently said uh, that in fact the you know when we come out of covid if you like the the agenda should be that climate change awareness should be at the very heart of all curating. Mm. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't exactly <laughs> fill one with confidence. Is that something that the head of the Tate should be saying, Ray? Well, the problem there, of course, is that you're moving away from notions of excellence. Yeah. And this has been commented on before, the fact that we've gone from a situation now where excellence was rewarded and promoted and uh, having years of experience under your belt and that was, was, it was encouraged through grants and so forth to now apparently using ideology and agendas as a basis for funding irrespective of merit. And the, the art surely is an area where merit should be, should be paramount in terms, of, in terms of support or recognizing new talent rather than this idea, this equality of outcome, this idea that everybody is now an artist, in which case I want to self-identify and have a grant as an artist. <laughs> uh, so yes, I mean, it's very dangerous when suddenly ideology rather than, rather than the actual, the, the, the virtue of art itself becomes the, uh, the raison d'etre for, uh, for an institution. Yes, I think the, the, the also uh, the... Nicholas Sorota, who's the head of the Arts Council, said that, you know, this is an opportunity for the arts to reset. Now, mm -hmm. we're hearing this word a lot, reset. <laughs> uh, what actually, what do you think that reset would look like? What do you think it would look like in the future? Well, Peter, um, you and I shared a letter, did we not, mm. um, a few months ago? Yeah. Which, um, now, this is a fascinating letter, actually. It was a private letter to you, wasn't it? And uh, the, the, he was a writer and uh, a writer of great experience, as I recall the details. Mm. And um, he, he was, um, he found it impossible to place his work because he felt that in television, minds were set against the sort of subjects and the treatments that he wished to give them. So he was unable really to, to go on working. He poured, I mean, and I'm, you know, I have no direct experience of trying to work for the arts. But my impression of the arts is, as an outsider, I mean, um, is that it is a closed world. And it's not a world which um, would very much welcome the intervention of outsiders who have heretical ideas. 
I mean, that's just my impression of it. But that that letter came to mind as we were talking because it was move, it was it was it was telling that letter. Do you know uh, if if we? It's, I remember it very well. I remember that letter. If we if we look at this thing of the of the arts going forward, you know, the resetting of the arts, uh, isn't this is this going to be an, uh, an arts world that is drenched in identity politics? I mean, you might say it already is. But I'm just thinking now, now that we've had the protests that we've had over the past couple of months, you know, now that we are talking in an era where statues are coming down and all these sort of things, I mean, basically, do you think that this is actually will intensify, you know, that rather than having a freeing up, I think this kind of thing that you're having in the arts now, like this, there is this saying, stay in your lane, you know, uh, we're having actors now uh, being you know, apologetic for having played a part that was not integral to their genetics, you know. Uh, what do you say to that, William? I mean, do, do you see this as a problem for the arts, uh, politically or not? Um, well, it hasn't impacted on me very much. I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss other people's concerns. Um, I mean, you know, I, I just, just to put the, the contrary view, um, I'm somebody who prefers going to Tate Britain than going to Tate Modern. Uh, but I'm, I'm at liberty to do either, and both are there. And, and, and I know a, another bunch of people who would prefer to go to Tate Modern. So we, I, I go to Pimlico, and they go to the South Bank, and we're, we're, we're all fairly happy, I think, in, in that regard. Um, and again, I, 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 you know, and this is just to sort of open up the discussion and, and not to dismiss other sincerely held points of view. But if I take a walk down Shaftesbury Avenue, I don't feel that I'm in a sort of uh, left-wing kind of ghetto there. It seems to be fairly sort of mainstream entertainment that's on offer there. So I would say that um, there is, um, from the point of view of a punter, there seems to be something for everyone. Um, I, I don't sense that certain points of view are being um, forcefully excluded, but maybe that's because it's not my point of view. Um, I do think there's a pretty wide choice out there at the moment. Um, and uh, I, my, my feeling is the more artists, performers, call them what you will, are left to get on with it, um, the wider that choice remains. Do you think it's a wide choice, Jacob? So I have sympathy with what William's saying, and I'm casting my mind back to Shaftesbury Avenue before lockdown, and, and it certainly doesn't feel like a, a left-wing ghetto. And I think there's a much broader range to the arts than what's often connected with that term. And yes, when you think about the mainstream theatre, um, the things you get on Shaftesbury Avenue, then um, I think William has a really good point. At the same time, I think when you talk about what many people call high art or, and things like that, and I cast my mind back to a statement that was released in June when the reopening of the galleries was announced, that statement um, given out by the, uh, the Tate and the Tate Museum... Sorry? Could you come here? Oh, sorry, there's someone talking over. It's my okay, ear. carry on, carry on. Right, okay. Uh, for the, um, the Tate Gallery and the V&A, etc., a statement went out saying that our role is at the current time um, to deal with critical issues around racial equality, social justice, and climate change. And my first thought was, why? Why has that become the greater mm -hmm. connection of the arts? Why has that become the modus operandi? I would expect it to be one element. One expects there to be socially switched on or activist art here and there, but to have all the major national institutions of the capital city saying that this is their primary function, if you like, mm. 
not not to cultivate political discussion, but to lead the political discussion in one particular direction, if we're honest, mm. then that for me is a cause for concern, not least because it's exactly the same point of view which is being expressed by high street banks and major corporations, as well as most of the media. Mm. I mean, I'm sorry to go on a bit about this, but it, it struck me then when I was um, listening just now that this conversation is actually much more helpful and insightful to me than any other conversation I've witnessed in, you know, what might be called the mainstream media. And this is the sort of thing which one used to get on, you know, BBC Two or The Late Show or on Radio Four. And the fact that we're having a conversation, the fact that this conversation is of such a high quality and it's actually happening on a YouTube channel, I think sort of uh, it makes the point I'm trying to make. Really. The thing is, is that, uh, you know, with this, this statement you've just talked about, Jacob, hmm. I mean, the, to me, I find it quite chilling, right? But um, I, I, not just because it's 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 anti to my antipathetic to my view, but it's not the arts should not be there for social engineering. I mean that is not what they're about, surely, William. Well, absolutely. I mean, and uh, you know, I guess we're not going to have a. Uh, I, I come back to the point about setting a template, a precedent for future administrations. Um, you know uh, the. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the less administrators, even curators, have to do with um, the arts, the performing arts, the visual arts, the better, really. Um, one of the reasons I enjoy going to the National Gallery uh, in particular is because it feels very lightly curated. There doesn't seem to be um, an overview at all, really. I mean, the, the paintings are put in there. They're, they're very nicely presented. And one takes a look around and one becomes one's own creator and curator in a sense um, there are other institutions where the the curatorial eye is, is more avert and then one feels as if one's sharing someone else's vision rather than um, producing one's own what excited me for instance about some of these um, rather more anarchic theatre productions that happened in the past that I was writing about in the spectator there was one particular example um, in East Berlin, when the wall came down, there was a big old department store called Tackle. Well, they called it Tackle's afterwards. It was like Selfridges, like a, a German Selfridges. It was bombed out during the war. The East Germans never got around to repairing it. And after the wall came down, a lot of artists, performers, all sorts of people moved in. And it was an absolute free for all. And this place became the most exciting art space in Europe for a while, I think. Um, any time you went in there, um, there were all sorts of things going on, whether it was dance or theatre or art or music or whatever. The space was entirely uncurated. Anybody could go, could go there and do whatever they wanted, and you could turn up at any time and see pretty much anything you wanted. Mm -hmm. um, as an economic model, it was pretty ruinous in that I don't think anybody got paid anything for doing it. But as an artistic space, it was very exciting simply because there were very few administrators or curators involved. And these were people, and, and I say this as somebody who, who wants less curation of the left or the right in the future. I mean, that, that the, some, it was a very creative space because there were very few curators. Mm. 
I mean, what do you I, think of that? Should we have like uh, an art co-op in Harrods? <laughs> well, I just want to go back and say that, that I agree very much with what Jacob was saying because I think that there is a, there is a separation that you can easily draw between you know the Shaftesbury Avenue, the West End, the Cameron Mackintosh theatres, which are far more commercial institutions really, catering to a tourist crowd. I mean, they want bums on seats, and you have to appeal to the public. Other arts institutions don't really appeal to the masses, and so you know you have Thriller the musical, you got Tina Turner the musical, Abba the musical, all the sort of things going on. In, in the West End. But, you know, there is a cultural crisis happening right now, this idea of a monoculture, this cancel culture, where if you dare to disagree, even in the slightest way, or even to espouse something which was mainstream, a mainstream view 10 years ago, will now lead to you being cancelled by people in the arts, by publishers, by, by art galleries, by, by theatres. There, there's a problem. I mean, our show is called Counterculture, and uh, I've heard a few comments uh, over the months from people who said, well, you're, you're, you chaps are conservative. How can you be the counterculture? That's the irony. We have now become the counterculture, and the establishment are actually now the radical left. And that's why I'm saying that a radi a radical times call for radical measures, and it's time for the right, or at least those who are mainstream centre-left and centre-right, to, 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 to espouse radical proposals. Now, I'm not saying at all that there should be a minister, uh, a minister of culture who dictates where the funds go, or in, in any way tries to influence the type of productions that are being put out there, or the type of exhibitions. What I'm saying is that if an institution or its directors uh, are in any way supporting this cancel culture, or in any way stifling the variety and breadth of, um, of expression that's out there, then funding should be cut from, from those institutions. Mm, and, that, and, and that's what I'm trying to say. I want to, you know, we should encourage all types of performance and expression, uh, and, and funding should be allocated to those institutions that allow for that wide, that, that wide display. I mean, I agree in principle. It would be lovely to see some of the more egregious examples of cultural bias in the arts establishment punished for their for their for their relentless promotion of their ideology that would be great to see but practically i don't see how a government could intervene mm. uh, because it would become terribly legalistic and it would become politically dynamite i mean you would have the you would have the you would have the liberal establishment down on you like a ton if you attempted any such thing. But I just wanted to pick up on something that William said, which I think is, is, is perhaps a truism. But uh, what happened in Berlin in the years after Germany remained its, uh, regained its unity, that the art which sprang up was, of course, the creation of the political moment. So, and that is true of all art that all art exists within a political moment. And the culture of that moment inevitably affects the arts. Now, I think what's happened in Britain at the moment is that it comes down to the simple principle of free speech. I think that many people are muzzled, actually. And this would, this would, this would be true for the arts, as it is true for many other areas of life. It isn't just about the arts. It is about wider society. And of course, the arts reflect wider society. But I think the point is that the, the, the arts, uh, I would say, always have, they have, they pride themselves on being free thinkers, traditionally. They pride themselves on being edgy and provocative. They pride themselves on being challenging. And indeed, you know, a beacon of, of free, free speech. 
none of these things are really true anymore, are they? No, I mean, you know, they just, if anything, I sort of see them as the kind of visual display unit for <laughs> the kind of ruling orthodoxies. I mean, Peter, you know, yeah. something that Noam Chomsky, right? Chomsky is very clear about free speech. What he says is that uh, free speech, in its essence, means that you listen to people whose views you detest. Yeah. And actually, we hear none of that in the arts. Yeah. So actually, I agree with you entirely. There is, no, there is no freedom of political speech within the arts space at the moment in the UK. Yeah. I mean, I, and there we are. That's do you what think, I think. Do you think, I mean, finally, do you, do you think that the arts now have become a, simply a part of the leisure industry, would you say? Uh, Jacob, stop with you. I think um, if they don't, if I can just yes, explain, I mean, if I can just explain that, yeah. if they don't really take on many of the issues that you know people feel are relevant, you know whether it's Brexit, whether it's immigration, whether it's Islam, all of these things, which the arts do not go near, right? They are surely losing their kind of broader relevance. So just become a nice thing to do. Yes, I think that's right, and I think. I personally hesitate with the term creative industries. I don't really like it because no. it over-economizes, um, you know, a free space, if you like. Mm. Um, I mean, I think what we need, I, I th well, I think the problems go back very, very far. And I think we need um, a, a profound discussion, really, about what the arts are for and what culture is. And we've completely lost our, our sense of that. Mm. Um, I think that was around in the early 90s, and I think the free space in Berlin that, that William described, um, yeah, I, I really like the idea of a light-touch curation and that, that realm of free expression, but I think at the moment the idea that you know we have institutions who bear a great responsibility to preserve and guard and transmit things which are our collective inheritance, um, and I'm, I'm very concerned that we've lost that. Well, look, gentlemen, thanks very, very much uh, on that note. A rather downbeat ending, but I'm afraid a, a, an appropriate one, I would say. Uh, thank you very much to Jacob Phillips. Thank you very much, William Cook, Rafe, of course, and Robin Aiken. That's it for Counterculture this week. Uh, please do subscribe, won't you? Uh, it's very important that you subscribe. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>